This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This evening we're going to talk about sleep and aging, and uh, I'm going to ask you one, one uh, favor. Don't fall asleep on me. Um, we'll try to get through this whole thing, and hopefully um, we'll share some of the knowledge that uh, we've gained about sleep. And it turns out to be not everything that we want to know, but um, we're going to look into what happens to sleep as we age. Now, everything that has life sleeps one way or another. Uh, and, and some of these um, uh, creatures and organisms have ingenious ways of, of sleeping. For example, take the dolphin there. A dolphin breathes air like you and I, has lungs, uh, yet ha- lives in the water and has to sleep. When you sleep, you sort of slow down and you stop swimming. And so what's it going to do? So the dolphin actually has this ingenious way that half of the brain sleeps at one time and half at the other. So he can still run around and sleep at one time or the other. You have fish, uh, the birds sleep. And this right here represents a bacteria. Even bacteria sleep. Now, they don't sleep like you and I sleep, but they do have a quiescent time in their cycle, um, daily or yearly or monthly, whatever the bacterium is, that you can consider this as possible sleep. Even viruses go dormant to a certain degree. So everything that has life, that's the point of this slide, sleeps. So therefore, sleep must be important. It turns out that roughly about a third of our lives is spent sleeping. Now, some of us may be a quarter of our lives, uh, and we'll talk about that, too, because uh, it's important for health. Um, but, and um, for the longest time, we never paid attention to sleep. We all took it for granted, and we went to sleep, and we, uh, we took, um, paid attention to the time that we are awake But it turns out that sleep, instead of just a time where the brain turns off, let's say a computer, you turn it off, uh, it it doesn't just turn off. Actually, some aspects of sleep, the brain is extremely active. In fact, the brain actually warms up in some what we call sleep stages. Uh, And and it turns out that sleep is a very dynamic behavior um, that has specific categories of sleep that we call sleep stages. I sort of try to put them up here as stage one, stage two, stage three. Now they call them N1, N2, and N3, and REM sleep. Everybody remembers REM sleep because it's a very sexy word, right? REM sleep, rapid eye movement. And it turns out to be very important for health. And we'll talk a little bit about REM sleep too. If all of you right now are sitting here, and I ask you just to look forward quietly and close your eyes, just for a second. Now you can open them now. All right. If I had EEG electrodes in your brain, your your brain would do this exactly. You would you would right now you when you have your eyes open, your brain looks like this. Your EEG, your electroencephalogram. As soon as you close it, you get what is called alpha waves. Just pure alpha rhythm. And 90% of you will have this. Some of you do not have this. Um, but 90% of us will have this alpha rhythm. And if your eyes start slowly to a slow rolling eye motion like this, don't do that because that means you're about to fall asleep. You're getting groggy. So that's why I only had you two seconds with your eyes closed. Then after that, you go into alpha dropout, you go to stage one sleep. Then you have these very specific packets of very fast frequency of the brain called sleep spindles. And there's other big waves called K-complexes, and that makes it stage two sleep. 
And you can actually rest in stage two sleep. Stage one sleep, it's like a transition. We can still hear a few things. Maybe 50% of us can still hear sweet nothings in our ears. Others are out already for the count. And then you get into deep sleep when you get these big, tall waves. And, and that is a very deep, restful sleep. The body is, is basically breathing. Um, the breathing mechanism uh, is now being guided by our metabolic rate. Very steady, very stable. And then you get into the chaotic part of REM sleep. REM sleep, that's when the brain actually warms up. We tend to cool down as we go to sleep, but it warms up and the body cools down and you have this rapid eye movements. Um, it's very interesting. They were first discovered in children. Uh, it was actually a fellow, um, a physician fellow, that, that just looking at, at, at his little son and the little eyes kept on moving and they did an EEG and you have these rapid eye movements during sleep. And that's REM sleep. So it's a very controlled, elaborate, precise mechanisms. And each one of these stages, we've discovered that they have physiological significance. And uh, that's more than what we need to get into right now. There's the gamut as far as um, what people think about sleep. Now, this lady, some of you may know, um, uh, Ethel Piaf, who's a famous French singer and actress. And uh, this is what she said about sleep. For me, sleep is a waste of time. I'm afraid to sleep. It's a form of death. Now, if you look at the scriptures, uh, various uh, religions, you'll see that death is, is equated or it's a, an allegory to sleep. Because it's sort of similar. You're unconscious when, you're, when you sleep really good, okay? And you wake up in the morning, all of a sudden you wake up, it's eight hours have gone by. It's like you were dead. You have no sense of time. And, uh, but it's really not dead. As I already mentioned, sleep is a very, very active process um, where we are doing certain physiological functions uh, that later on I'll tell you uh, what they do. But this is the way I, I, I look at sleep. A good laugh... A long sleep are the two best cures for anything. This is an Irish proverb. And it is true. If you don't sleep well, nothing works well. Your brain doesn't work well. Your heart doesn't work well. Your veins don't work well. Your arteries, um, you don't feel good. Your muscles, your skin deteriorates. That's why people talk about their beauty sleep. So sleep is very important. That's why one-third of our lives is spent sleeping. That's what we've discovered so far. So... Um, it's important. Now, the question always happens, why do we sleep? I remember back in medical school, I had a professor who was looking for substance S uh, in the spinal fluid someplace, uh, trying to see you know, if he could do good work in eight hours per day. What if he could be awake 24 hours a day and not having to sleep? He could do a whole lot more work. Well, I like my sleep. I, I don't like to stay awake all day long. Um, but but we found a few things that sleep does. And, and one of the things that we know for sure is that sleep has physical and mental restorative properties. Literally, when we go to sleep, the brain repairs itself. And that means that when we are awake, through this lecture here, what you're learning you're putting in information, but it literally depletes your brain. It uses up ATP energy that we need. And it may even have some, some um, structural damage that when we go to sleep, it repairs itself. There's good evidence on this. Um, there's something called adenosine. That's a drug that we actually use in the intensive care unit. But it is a, a product of ATP. ATP, as you know, is the high-energy compound that we have. That that's what makes our muscles move, and that's the energy that we have in our bodies. It's, it's actually a chemical. And uh, when that gets metabolized, you get ATP, adenosine. And adenosine accumulates in the brain as we go through the day. And at night, when we go to sleep, is the highest. 
And in the morning, we wake up, it's the lowest. So it turns out that the tight blood-brain barrier that we have uh, that keeps certain drugs from our brain and protects our brain during the day at night sort of loosens out up a little bit, and it's able to get rid of some of these chemicals and byproducts and wastes that accumulate in the brain. There's also certain genes that turn on only when we sleep, not when we're awake. And these genes, uh, it's been described very well in animals, uh, repair the Schwann cells. Schwann cells are cells, are a type of uh, brain cells that, that cover the axons. Think of those as the wires going through our body. And the myelin membrane, which is the insulation, it repairs it. When you don't have insulation, you get into trouble. That's what multiple sclerosis does. The myelin membrane sort of breaks down, and now you've got short circuits everywhere, and you've got multiple sclerosis. So the brain literally repairs, repairs itself when we're asleep. Therefore, sleep is important. And if nothing works, at least when we get up in the morning, we no longer feel sleepy. It cures sleepiness. That's, that's one of the good things about sleep. Now, why do we sleep? Uh, sleep is also a state of cardiovascular relaxation. Uh, even when you take a nap, even those 20 minutes, you know, a power nap, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, your, your heart rate, your blood pressure, uh, your metabolic rate drops by about 10 to 20 percent. That's everybody. And, that's, and, the, and the literature is called dipping. Eighty-five uh, percent of us are dippers. When we go to sleep, our blood pressure drops. And we feel that that is important for cardiovascular health. Even that little bit of a break of uh, 15, 20 minutes may be beneficial for the heart to get a break, the blood vessels to get a break from the high pressure, blood pressure that we have. And we feel that it is a good prevention for cardiovascular disease. And indeed, uh, um, a, a sleep disorder that we'll uh, talk about tonight, obstructive sleep apnea, those people tend to get hypertensive. And hypertension is one of the first steps for developing cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, and then heart attacks, strokes, and things of that nature. So that's another, with a, at least that we can say is a reason why we sleep, other than repairing the brain. And this one is a very intriguing, um, I don't, don't want to call it a reason uh, to sleep, but it's something that happens during sleep. It has to do with processing of the information that you're getting right now or that you got throughout the day and memory consolidation. It turns out that 80% of what you're going to remember tomorrow of what you've learned tonight, it'll, be, it'll depend on how good a night of sleep you have tonight. 80%. That's quite a bit. And it turns out that when you sleep after you study, you're able to remember things and do well in a test. I'm not talking about 30, 40, up to 50, 70% improvement in your ability to recall things. Um, and it turns out that, that REM sleep is good for the gist of things. So uh, you will do very well in a multiple choice question. Uh, you may not be able to write down the answer, but if I give you choices, you say, ah, that's the answer. Um, and if, um, and the deep sleep, the one with the big tall waves, I saw you called delta waves, delta sleep, that one is very good for a spatial type of uh, learning. For example, a surgeon learning a, a procedure, a pianist learning a piece, a gymnast learning a routine. Uh, that will consolidate that memory of that exercise that person was doing. And, so, um, and in the morning, they'll be able to perform even better. So to learn, you have to be well-rested. But to remember things, uh, to consolidate your memory, you have to also sleep well. Um, after you learn. So it's better to study and sleep and then take the test than to study and take the test. You'll do a whole lot better by doing it. Just by getting those hours of sleep 
uh, and getting some REM sleep and deep sleep in those cases. Uh, I, when I first learned about this, you know, uh, and people who are doing this kind of work, it's amazing. Um, and um, how many hours we wasted uh, studying all night long and it comes a time that it, it's a diminishing returns you just have to go to bed and um, be trustful that what you learn is going to be there and sh- indeed sleep will help you do that there are a few forces that drive us to sleep and the one that everybody knows is the circadian force but we're going to talk about the circadian homeostatic force those two in red uh, the neurohormonal forces not so much uh, but you know, uh, uh, there's a hormone that comes out, it's called melatonin. When we first go to sleep, you turn out the lights, melatonin comes on. If you turn on the lights, melatonin goes away. And so melatonin is pretty weak, but it does help us sleep. It, it helps us. We use it in the clinic to move sleep around, the sleep phase. Somebody's sleep delayed or sleep advanced, we use melatonin sometimes to help them that. And sociocultural forces, there's some, 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 um, uh, some countries uh, or, or peoples that it is their habit to take a nap, uh, a siesta in the evening, if you, if you care. I go to my, visit my parents in Mexico, and they take their siesta. Uh, even if they're in the field working, you go under a tree and take a siesta. And... Um, and that may be also good for somebody's health, taking a siesta. But circadian forces. Circadian forces have to do with a suprachiasmatic nucleus. This is a nucleus. This is a, a, a little ball of cells that sits in the anterior hypothalamus. So this is sort of in the front mid part underneath your brain. And uh, it's directly attached to the optic nerves and to the eyes. And what rules this, this, this nucleus is bri- bright light, uh, actual light. And Every cell in your body has a clock, a circadian clock. So if you take a cell and you make it alive, to, to stay alive in a Petri dish, that cell will keep a certain rhythm uh, that uh, may not be 24 hours, but it has its rhythmicity. But the, the clock that rules them all is the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And this is uh, an important clock because um, uh, you probably notice this clock when you go to Europe or Asia, um, not South America or North America, but you travel east or west, you're out of sync. Even your bathroom necessities are out of sync. They're very bothersome. You're trying to have a good time, and you know what you used to go in the morning now it has in the middle of the day, and it's very difficult, very bothersome. And, and that's the superchiasmatic. Eventually, you become like the natives as long as you stick to the sun and go out there and act with the natives, pretty soon you'll do it. In fact, you, you can move this clock about an hour a day. you just be acting with the natives. So if you're eight hours away, it'll take about a week to, get, uh, to become like a native. I have here, um, again, talking about suprachiasmatic super nucleus, um, this is more or less the propensity to fall asleep. This is falling asleep and going up is waking up or being more aroused, more awake, awakened. And this is our circadian rhythm through the day and somebody who's well-rested and is sleeping well in a regular wake-sleep schedule. We're most awake around 9 in the morning. We sort of wake up again around 9 p.m. And we're most sleepy around 1 to 2 p.m. This is after you eat your meal. You sit down and we take a nap. And then you're sleepiest around 1 to 3 in the morning or so. And this is why you can get up and go to the restroom and go right back to bed and fall back asleep. Unless you have insomnia, everybody can do this. If you get up to go to the restroom you know, earlier than that or before that, you may not be able to fall asleep. Or, or after that, you may not be able to fall asleep as easily. This propensity to fall asleep is very much tightly associated with our core body temperature. We're the warmest when we're awake. And we're the coldest when we are very sleepy. And we wake up 
as we're warming up and we fall asleep as we're cooling down. This is why when uh, your doctor tells you, well, you have insomnia, take a hot shower and then go to bed. Well, so that's warming you up. You say, well, it's going to wake me up. But no, after you get out of the shower, you start cooling down. And that is what supposedly uh, makes you promote sleep. So that's a little trick that we use. But this is the circadian rhythm. Um, it is about 24 hours a day. In fact, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the rhythm is not 24 hours a day. It's closer to 25 hours a day. If I put you in a dark cave, there's no light, nothing whatsoever. You will sleep and be awake in a, in a rhythm that it's about 25 hours a day. But we live in a world that is 24 hours a day. Therefore, we need to, I'm going to show it again, we need the sun we need to be out there to entrain us into a 24-hour day. And that gets our clock in sync with our world. By the way, what planet in our solar system has a 25-hour day? It's a question. No one knows? I guess? Mars. Mars actually has 25-hour day, or close to it, as compared to Earth, it's 24-hour days. All of the others are either too fast or too slow. Uh, and some of them don't even turn. They just sit there like, like uh, Mercury. Um, but um, this is why some people say that we came from Mars. At least men came from Mars. <laughs> That's what I say. This is called a hypnogram. If we do a sleep study on you, go to the lab, we put the electrodes into the EEG, and we plot um, the time here that you were in the lab sleeping, and then your sleep stages, you see a very nice pattern here. Every 90 minutes or so, you go into a REM period. And notice the REM periods are getting longer and longer and longer. And they actually, when we look at the REM, gets, uh, let's call it deeper, or REM density increases. You're REMing your brains out. You're, you're, you're moving your eyes faster and faster as you go. And the last REM period can be a half an hour. It can be 45 minutes. And REM sleep, 80% of our dreaming, we do it in REM sleep. Uh, and this is why most of us will wake up out of a dream in the morning. And very interesting, when you wake up out of REM sleep, you're wide awake, you know exactly where you are, you know exactly what you need to do. When you wake up out of deep sleep, you're like headachy and you're wondering, well, what's going on? What time it is? What day is it? And eventually it takes you a few minutes to get your bearings. And uh, luckily, we most of the time wake up out of REM sleep. Notice that deep sleep takes place mostly in the first half, first third of the night. And REM sleep, most of it happens in the last half or last third of the night. And so we have a few cycles of REM. And... Um, Contrary to what people think that they should sleep like logs, we wake up around 10 times an hour. That's normal, pretty much normal. You're not aware of the awakening. It's tiny ones lasting 15 seconds or less. And, but that's enough to keep your muscle tone, uh, move around a little bit, prevent deep venous thrombosis, clots in your legs. Um, so the design is quite good that if you sit there without moving, you will get muscle damage and skin damage. In the ICU, when we sedate somebody, we don't turn them around. Within a day or two, they develop a pressure sore. And so it's important for us to maintain that muscle tone, those awakenings. And every 90 minutes, when you go to a REM period, we tend to wake up fully. We wake up maybe a minute or so. You may not even remember that you woke up. You may turn around, take a big sigh, and go right back to sleep. Or in some cases, like men, uh, when we get older, we get up and go to the restroom because that prostate is killing us. And um, <clears throat> there's a few more changes that are normal in sleep that I need to just mention to you before we get into as we get older. Um, but temperature. When we go into REM sleep, we become poikilothermic. That means that you tend to go to room temperature. We cannot control our temperature when we're in REM sleep. We become colder. We do not sweat. We do not shiver when we're in REM sleep. 
and we become like amphibians. You know, they need to be in the sun to get warm up. Um, luckily, we don't stay there that long. Uh, we cannot move when we're in REM sleep. This is why when you're having that nightmare and a lion is chasing you, uh, you don't just bolt out of the room and then you'll crash into the window or something. Uh, we just don't move. Although I'll show you there's um, the final, if, um, hopefully we'll get to everything, the final uh, sleep disorder has to do with people who can move during REM sleep. Blood pressure, we talked about the dipping already. Hypoventilation. We, we don't breathe as deeply when we're asleep. And that's okay for most of us. You know, right now, if I do an oximetry, look at how much oxygen you have in your blood, most of you will be 97, 98, 99. The younger ones will be 99, 100, all right? And um, when we go to sleep, it'll drop to 96, 95. Who cares? It's perfectly normal. Uh, But if somebody has COPD or interstitial lung disease or pulmonary hypertension, then going to sleep can be uh, deleterious or dangerous because their their um, oxygen saturation may drop uh, enough to cause other problems. All right, so that's normal sleep. And what happens when you have abnormal sleep? This is a survival curve. Um, where you show here years, they follow these patients for 10 years, and um, everybody's alive at first. You know, people die. So even normal, these are normal people. By the time 10 years goes by, you know, a good, uh, what is it, I don't know, 15% died or something like that. And, uh, but compared to people who had sleep apnea, this is severe, this is mi- moderate, and this is mild sleep apnea. The point of this slide is this, that when you have abnormal sleep, in this case, obstructive sleep apnea, people snore and choke and gasp all night long, uh, at the end of 10 years, there is a significant difference between normal and mild versus those who had severe sleep apnea as to their survival. So sleep and good sleep quality appears to be important for our survival. As we have gone through the years, in the last 50 years, we have, uh, as a group, slept less and less. And there's, people have discussed why. You know, there's a number of reasons why. But uh, I can tell you, know, there's gadgets in our home that we look at all the time. And um, so we've, we've slept less and less. And uh, it turns out that how long you sleep, it's emerging as a very important health factor. In uh, their study, these, some of these studies, I'm talking about thousands of people. This one uh, is about 7,000 individuals. This one's about 73,000 individuals. This one uh, was about a million. It was from UCSD right here. Obviously, when you're talking about these kinds of studies that are huge, we're talking about a questionnaire and asking people how long they sleep and then correlating that with their health status. It turns out that if you sleep less than six hours in this study, less than five hours in this study, higher risk of high blood pressure, coronary artery events, heart attacks. Uh, and in this one here, uh, if you could graph that, it would be like a U-shape, where if you slept less than seven to eight hours, your health is worse. If you slept more than seven to eight hours, your health also is worse, and including death. You can put anything there. So it's a U-shaped topical curve. So sleep becomes very important. It appears that there is a specific number of hours that are best for adults, seven to eight. That's the recommended uh, sleep for adults. That it's, it's, um, puts you in, the, in a plane where you're more likely to have better health. It turns out that those who sleep long are probably already sick. But those who sleep short sleep, uh, those are still healthy that may get sick or have more problems because they don't sleep long enough. So, aging and sleep. What gets us from this to that? 
All right, so that's what, that's what we're going to be talking a little bit about today. And, um, and the three factors that for a good night's sleep is really three, is schedule, duration, and quality of sleep. We don't have a whole lot of control over our quality of sleep. Uh, some, you know, for example, if you drink three beers and then go to sleep, your sleep quality is not going to be that good. All right, if you drink a bunch of water and then go to sleep, you're going to wake up a lot to go to the restroom. So there is some control, but other than that, not a whole lot. But the schedule and duration, we do have control over those aspects of our lives. Sometimes, you know, we have, we're ruled by the clock. Sometimes we're actually ruled by the late night show. We have to watch Stephen Colbert or whoever these guys are, all right? Um, but you know what? i tell you a secret. These guys are in um, YouTube. And just go there. You can watch them there at any time you want, all right? So... <laughs> Instead of in the middle of the night. Um, and um, so we're creatures of habit. We need to be able to have a specific time to go to sleep, especially as we get older. Because there's so many things you want to do. Uh, how many of you are retired? Most of you? Oh, most of you, okay. So you have the whole world and you have time, right, in your hands and money, hopefully. Uh, so you can go anywhere you want. You can think of all kinds of things, but you still need your habits of sleep. We call it sleep hygiene. doesn't mean you don't bathe before you're going to be. It means that you have good rules of sleep. And so going to bed at the same time and getting up at the same time as a habit, sometimes you're going to stay late because of whatever. Uh, but that's very important for our health. Preparing for bed, making, making it auspicious so that you can sleep. You know, it's somebody with insomnia, they finish watching, I don't know, CSI or something like that. You can't sleep after watching that, especially if you have insomnia. You watch a couple murders, you can't sleep that. So you have to prepare yourself to go to sleep. And wake up at the same time in the morning. Um, and, um, and by all means, something that I may not have here, but it may be sprinkled throughout there. If you get at least 30 minutes to a half an hour of bright light in the morning, outdoors, no sunglasses, in the morning the, the sun won't give you cancer. Okay? It won't give you cataracts either. It's coming from the side, but it's bright. It's beautiful. It's the strongest, one of the strongest natural antidepressants we have. It gives you energy. gives you strength. Uh, don't go in the noonday sun. Only mad dogs and English men do that. Uh, don't do that. Um, but in the morning, it's beautiful. Do that, and I will probably be out of a job if you do that. All right? <laughs> so uh, the uh, National Sleep Foundation has a few recommendations for how long should we be sleeping. And as you notice here, the trend. When we're young, we need lots of sleep, uh, 14 to 17 for a, a newborn. By the way, their sleep is not quite like ours. They only have two stages when they're newborns. By the time they're six months old, now they're getting their four stages like we all have. And then the sleep duration drops, drops, drops down. And for us down here, older adults, seven to eight hours of sleep per night. Pretty similar to the, to the I'm still a young adult, my goodness. Okay, that's good. Or just an adult, I'm sorry, not a young adult. And, um, but seven to eight hours of sleep per night is what is recommended. So... It's time to go home and make an assessment of your sleep habits, your sleep hygiene, and make a few healthy changes, and, and I think it's going to reward you tremendously. Now, as we age, we look at EEGs, our pattern of sleep, what we call the sleep architecture, also changes. And there's a few changes that every study has shown uh, that are, are pretty much uh, engraved in stone. One is the decline in the total sleep time. Notice here how when somebody is less than five years old or so, this is the total sleep time they do in the night, in minutes, and when we are aged, um, we sleep less. 
Also, the wazo. The wazo is the wake after sleep onset. Um, how consolidated your sleep is. That also goes up. So there's more aches and pains and prostates and hot flashes and things like that that wakes us up. And so we end up more awake at night. REM sleep actually doesn't suffer that much. It stays pretty much okay. But deep sleep, slow wave sleep, this one really drops. And by the way, I'm sorry to say this, but most of the drop has to do with men. We do about 20, 25% deep sleep when we're an adult. But as we age, men, by the time they're 85, they probably have less than 5% deep sleep. As compared to women, they still keep probably 15, 18%. They drop, but not as much as men. Uh, We still don't know why. Um, I blame testosterone. Um, I don't know. We still don't know why that happens because our brains do atrophy as we go as we get older, and that may have something to do with it. But I don't think men's brain atrophy more than women's. Uh, but we do lose it quite a bit. Uh, there are a few things also that we lose, but that's one of the major ones for sleep. Um, now also. Um, the others, uh, stage one may go up a little bit, stage two a little bit, but uh, other than that, those are the major changes that we see as we get older with sleep. And so if we can't change some of these things, uh, we can do other things around sleep, such as the hygiene, uh, if you have a sleep disorder, take care of it, and to improve the quality of our sleep to the best of our ability and therefore improve our health. Now, these are some common sleep disorders that we like to get through. But we'll talk about obstructive sleep apnea, insomnia, advanced sleep phase of kidney disorder, and REM sleep behavior disorder. These are sleep disorders that are quite common as we get older. And this is why I, I brought these. So what's obstructive sleep apnea? It's intermittent repetitive obstruction or collapse of the upper airway. It's a mechanical process in most cases, although there's other reasons for it too other than mechanical. Associated with a drop of blood pressure because you're not breathing. You're completely choking. You're not breathing. Oxygen drops. And I tell you, some of these apneas can last two, two and a half minutes. And uh, very long, you sit there. When is this guy going to breathe? You know, should I go in and shake him? And that's what happens. The bed partner ends up shaking them away because it's bothering them. You know, this, this guy is not. Usually, it's the men. This guy is not not breathing. And so, um, because they're trying to breathe against a closed throat, that activity makes them sweat. They sweat. They wet the, the, the usually the pillow, and and then it wakes them up. And luckily, that's what saves them. Um, because that by awakening up, they snore and choke and gasp and carry on, do that four or five times, uh, breaths, and then they fall back asleep. They do it again, repeat the whole thing again. Heart rate also goes down as you have the, have the apnea, and um, and it's it's like stepping on the brakes and the gas at the same time on a car because the heart rate goes down, but the blood pressure starts going up. And when you start breathing again, you no longer are stepping on the brakes, not just the gas, and then the heart rate really shoots up, and blood pressure really goes up. And that's a tremendous amount of stress in the cardiovascular system. I actually have uh, a graph here from one of our patients. This is about 10 years ago um, here at UCSD. This person has severe obstructive sleep apnea. We're just going to focus on this. By the way, this patient is in REM sleep. REM sleep gets worse when you're in and uh, apnea gets worse when you're in REM because you're paralyzed. You're totally uh, choked out. And uh, there are two channels for airflow, two channels for um, effort, respiratory effort. And this channel is for, for saturation, how much oxygen you have in your, in your blood. Notice there's lack of 
air movement at all, here almost a minute in this case. Notice how the effort is crescendo, and the patient is also paradoxing, meaning that the chest is going in, the belly is going out, because there's no air movement, and the, the, the belly has to move somehow. The belly is stronger than the chest when we breathe. And uh, notice the desaturation from 95 94% down to 66%. Tremendous amount of stress in the cardiovascular system. So this patient has severe obstructive sleep apnea, especially in this case during REM sleep. And um, you can't see the heart rate here, but it speeds up here, and then it slows down again. Uh, there are other cases that that is more prominent than in this one. So how many of us have obstructive sleep apnea? I just uh, highlighted two here in this graph of the prevalence of specific populations. Older veterans, uh, I, I, I am the uh, chief of sleep medicine at the VA hospital. If I walk in the wards or in the hallways, anybody I see, 80% of the time I'm going to be correct saying, this has sleep apnea, has sleep apnea, has sleep apnea. Because they're older, they're overweight, blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes, um, a number of other risk factors. And so 80% will have significant obstructive sleep apnea that needs to be treated, addressed. And the elderly, 50 to 70%, just in the, the fact that we're getting older, we tend to get obstructive sleep apnea. As we get older, things get bigger. You know, the ears get bigger, the nose get bigger, things start sagging, okay? The uvula, the soft palate is floppy in there, so very easy to choke. The tongue gets bigger. And if you're overweight, it's even worse. And so the elderly, we tend to also get obstructive sleep apnea. And as you can see, the risk factor is also for women and for men. And I didn't put the, the um, uh, reference here, but it just goes to show that aging has a lot to do with the prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea. It tends to level off around the age of 65, 70. And that is probably just a survival effect because people have died off and now it's just uh, the strongest survive and they, they don't change. So who gets obstructive sleep apnea? It is really a public health problem because in epidemic proportion, you saw 80, 70% of us, when we get older, we get it. Young people have it. I believe that there's two types of sleep apnea, one that I call malignant sleep apnea. It hasn't picked up in the literature yet. Those who are 30 to 60, uh, strongly associated with being obese, and that has very prominent or very uh, important cardiovascular complications. They will get a heart attack or a stroke sometime, the younger. And then you have the sleep apnea happens just because we get older. You know, the, the, the floppiness that I described, that's exactly. And, and so that one is not as bad, but when somebody is sleepy, we do treat them. But, you know, people who are like this, this gentleman actually gave us permission to use his picture. And uh, it's got short, thick neck, um, trunkal obesity, skinny arms, skinny legs, uh, maybe hypertensive diabetes, and uh, but, but what about her? Do you think she would get sleep apnea? Okay, most of us say, nah, she's young, uh, she's thin, and um, but I tell you, up to 25 to 30 percent of patients who have sleep apnea are thin. I have people, patients who look like her, and it is a social problem. They can't keep a boyfriend or, or <laughs> in the family. Uh, they go on trips with their girlfriends and they have to rent a room by themselves because, yeah, because they snore too much and they say, you go out there. And uh, so uh, it can become a social problem, uh, including this, the consequences. You can dress them up, comb their hair, bathe them, but you can't take them out anywhere because they fall asleep. And um, even back in the times of um, Flintstones, uh, this guy you know, got into trouble because he fell asleep at the wheel, save a tooth tire. And up to 20% of car accidents... Um, sleepiness had to do with it. it, it the cop doesn't ask about it, uh, but 
Uh, research has been showing that 20, 25 percent, these folks fell asleep and they just didn't tell anybody. And the, how many of you have bumped another car because you fell asleep? Okay, so uh, it's, uh, I fell over with me. All right. I didn't do any damage, okay? And um, consequences, other consequences. Lack of concentration, you crashed your car because he wasn't paying attention. <laughs> Changes in personality. Uh, men, uh, not just sleep apnea, if men, we are sleep deprived, we tend to be um, bad, we were angry, we're impatient, we chew the heads of people off. And uh, when we treat them, they're like little lambs. Women, on the other hand, they tend to be more like lack of energy. They just don't have the desire to do anything. They're tired. Men just get angry and upset. And um, erectile dysfunction, depression, fatigue, family discord, usually is the man hitting, but here the woman's one got upset. And um, somebody had those on the Internet, you know, just uh, the various features of sleep apnea, so I picked them up there. Um, But the consequence... That we're most afraid of because it takes time. It's very insidious. Is cardiovascular disease. So whatever you you want, you know, obesity, hypertension, hypersomnia, stroke, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, activated chemoreceptor, erectile dysfunction, angina, hypercoagulability, and you fall asleep. Okay, and so uh, that's the point. Now, how do you know if you have sleep apnea? There should be a high index of suspicion. One time, I, I think I landed in Boston, someplace, um, like at two in the morning. And uh, I'm walking, it was empty, and uh, they're trying to find my bags. And there was this worker, the guy who cleans the place, but asleep and a bench like this, <laughs> choking. I woke him up and gave him a card. Um, <laughs> and, um, and that's because I had a high level of suspicion that this man probably had obstructive sleep apnea. And so um, in that case, we send them to the lab. And nowadays, we do sleep studies in the home. In the lab, it's a very good study, but it's expensive. It's cumbersome. It's a funnel, you know, um, you know, bottleneck of going to the lab. And nowadays, for sleep apnea, we can do a home study. The VA, we've been pioneering sleep studies, home studies for the last 25 years. And uh, now everybody is, is agreeing with us that, yes, sleep studies at the home can diagnose sleep apnea. And we've used all of these, uh, except for this one, um, devices to do a sleep study. It's not important to know what they are, other than you can diagnose sleep apnea in the home. Now, how do you treat it? Well, there's a few things. Obviously, weight loss, because 70% of the patients are overweight or obese, so weight loss is important. Exercise is important. In fact, aerobic exercise, 12 weeks in a study, a uh, little uh, muscle exercise and aerobic exercise, decreases, decrease the apnea severity by 25%. And also good habits of sleep, avoiding uh, certain things like alcohol for going to bed. Alcohol very specifically relaxes the throat muscles, what we call the pharyngeal dilators, and you will snore. If you don't have apnea or snore and you drink and go to sleep, you'll snore that night. And if you snore but don't have apnea, you drink, you'll have apnea that night. If you have apnea, it'll be more severe. It just goes that way. So avoid drinking alcohol before going to bed. Now here's the dreaded CPAP. Uh, continuous positive airway pressure, uh, but it is the best therapy we have so far. There's all kinds of other things. You may have some questions about Inspire or some other things out there right now, but this remains the gold standard that we have. It, it, it is effective 100% of the time if you're able and willing to use it. Rarely do we have to do something else, and that has to do with people who are extremely big. Otherwise, it's quite effective. But cumbersome, it splints the throat open. That's all it does. It's not a ventilator. It doesn't give you oxygen. It just keeps your throat open, and you do the rest. Um, 
there's other treatment options. This is called a mandibular repositioning device or MRD or a mandibular advancement device or a jaw advancement device, whatever you're going to call it. Goes in your teeth and pulls your jaw forward. You have to have good teeth. It's good for people who have mild, maybe moderate apnea and um, young, good teeth. Otherwise, it'll knock your teeth out. And um, um, it has problems with TMJ issues. It is uh, definitely a second to sleep apnea, um, uh, to CPAP, but probably a distant second. Uh, some people use it extensively, but when we take them to the lab and see how effective it is, it's not that effective. At least at the VA hospital, it's just not very, very good. Um, because of the population we have. And there's other other therapies. I mentioned the Inspire therapies. It's actually surgery. It's a pacemaker you put in. Goes in your uh, A wire goes to your tongue. A wire goes to your ribs. Um, there's these little barb uh, pieces of plastic you put in your throat. That's basically for snoring. It doesn't work very well. This one, you stick a needle in the back of your tongue and you cook it. Um, with uh, microwaves, and then as it heals, it, it decreases in volume, becomes stiff, because that's the part of the tongue that blocks you. Again, for snoring, doesn't do much for sleep apnea. And this one, you put these little plugs in your nose. It's a, a one-way valve. When you inhale, it's open. When you exhale, it's partially closed. So puts a back pressure. Um, I haven't make, made it be able to work in anybody that I've tried it. <laughs> and um, some people say it works, but I tell you, my patients just, just cannot even be awake with that thing on. And it turns out that exercising the tongue is important. I don't mean talking, all right? I don't mean talking. I mean exercising the tongue uh, decreases the apnea severity, uh, if you do it correctly, up to 50%. Uh, So 20 20 minutes a day of the didgeridoo keeps the sleep doctor away. (laughs) And and so this gentleman is a middle-aged adult male, probably needs it. He probably has sleep apnea. Nicole Kidman probably does not have sleep apnea. This guy definitely needs it. And by the way, when you play this thing, exercise, you don't have to dress the part. You just use it like that, and you'll just be fine. Uh, but uh, I'd be surprised. I do have a patient, maybe four that are using this. And um, one is very cute because um, he lost weight. And I thought, no, he actually cured his sleep apnea. He lost weight and using the didgeridoo. And so we did the study, nose apnea. But now the wife is upset because he's making noise all day long. <laughs> And um, so he goes, he goes on vacation with the wife, and he forgets the blessed didgeridoo. Two weeks later, he starts snoring. The wife said, when we get home, you better start that thing again. <laughs> so uh, it may work. Insomnia. What's insomnia? It's difficulty initiating sleep, difficulty maintaining sleep, and awakening too early, early and not able to fall back asleep. That's what insomnia is. All of us are going to have insomnia one time or another, almost 100% of us. But only 15% of us will have it so that it affects our activities of daily living. And, and I tell you, people with insomnia, I have um, compared it to a person, a man or a woman, who's drowning in the middle of the lake. What's that person doing? Drowning. Still alive. Is yelling and screaming and kicking, right? Asking for help. And the more they move, the further they sink. They don't realize that if you just stop, and it's easier said than done. Stop. What happens when you're in the water? You float. And if you stand up, the water is only to level your navel. That's insomnia. You have the ability. You have the brain. The brain works. And, and I have adopted this, this, um, this philosophy. Step out of the way and let the brain do what it's supposed to do. But insomniacs are so upset and so angry and so... Well, uh, uptight about it that they're looking every day, the whole day is spent thinking, what am I going to do so that I can have a good night's sleep? And guess what happens? That night they try something else, and does it work? No, it does not work. 
You have to step out of the way and give it time, and the brain eventually will recover. There's a few tricks that we use, but eventually we'll recover. And, and the whole point that I tell my insomniacs is this. I may not be able to help you become a perfect sleeper, and don't compare yourself with your spouse or your bed partner. Or whatever. You're a different person. But the goal is for you to be satisfied with what you got. That's the beginning of healing. Even if it's four hours a night, be satisfied. Eventually it becomes five hours, eventually six, and maybe that's all you'll do, but that's good enough. By the way, we need four core hours per day uh, of sleep uh, in, in the long term uh, for us to stay alive. And insomnia doesn't kill anybody. Well, there is one called you know, lethal familial insomnia, but none of you have that here. It's very rare. And, um, but um, if you just allow and step out of the way and start to relax, and that's hard to do, stop drinking that caffeine, and eventually sleep will come. Even if it's not perfect, but sleep will come. We use the Spillman model, Spillman's model, to, to look at insomnia, something that I teach my residents and medical students and even other doctors. Because I tell you, um, you've probably gone to the doctor, some of you, to be treated for insomnia. And this is what happens in most cases. Hopefully your doctor is a great guy. But uh, you said, I have insomnia. What do they do? Get the prescription pads. Say, okay, Ambien, Zolpidem, here's uh, uh, Isopiclone. Here it goes. Go home. You're ready. That's not the answer. The answer, you need to find out why you have insomnia. So we have the three Ps, insomnia, predisposition. We cannot change this very much. We may be able to advise you about not worrying too much. But precipitating factors, sometimes we can intervene here. There's usually some type of stress. For example, I had a colleague that came and, and saw me at UCSD, a colleague from the VA, because I work in both places. And he said, I had insomnia for a year. I've tried everything. Eh, they work, but I'm not satisfied. I want to get off these things. I want to stop. So the next question is, you know, on year, what, what happened a year ago? And he starts thinking. He, says, ah, he got promoted. Now he's chief of something or other. He's got a bunch of lazy doctors on, under his belt. And he has to push. He's under a lot of stress. And, and so um, I told him, you know, I think that's the cause. Um, and um, so we can work together. You can cope or you can quit. He went home and thought about it, and guess what? He decided to quit. His insomnia, we just asked for his old job back. He got it. Insomnia went away, and I lost the client. Um, so <clears throat> perpetuating factors. This is where we most do our most intervention here. We're most effective here. And, and we use something called uh, CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. That, that therapy can be used for pain, for a number of things, but we use it for insomnia. And we try to change the maladaptive behavior, such as, well, I don't sleep enough, so I'm going to go to bed and stay there longer. They still have insomnia. Now it's worse, because now they're 10 hours in bed, they're sleeping four. So it feels worse. Or the television. Who told you the television was a set of hypnotic? Television is designed to keep you awake. They sell you the hamburgers, and then they sell you the, uh, the, the, the Rolades or something you know, to take care of the heartburn you get. And then looking at the clock. You know, what's the point of looking at the clock every hour? It's just frustration and anger. So the first thing we do is get rid of the clock and the television. By the way, the, the bedroom is only for two things, and we're talking about sleep. Uh, maladaptive thinking. I must get eight hours because Laredo said that seven to eight hours is what I need. And if I don't get it, I'm going to die. And so we try to get this thinking and these behaviors out of the way, step out, just let the brain do what it's supposed to do, and eventually they start sleeping. It takes a good eight hours just to try to 
get him to understand that. So that's, that's how we look at, at insomnia. There's drugs and things that we use outside that may cause insomnia. Alcohol by itself, caffeine. By the way, caffeine and somebody who's sensitive to it, even if you can fall asleep, your sleep is not that great when you have caffeine on board. So insomnia, it behooves us to stop any stimulant that we take, even if it's in the morning. Why well, only drink it in the morning? It does not matter. Diet pills, stimulants, stuff that we find in, in, um, in cold medications, nicotine. Sometimes our patients wake up just to smoke because they're going to withdraw. So they wake up two hours later, they smoke, and then go to sleep. And then and, you know, the nicotine helps them sleep um, in a sense because they go through withdrawals. And so uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, just very quickly, sleep hygiene, just we talked about that, good habits of sleep. Relaxation, if you're tight, tense, by all means, prepare for sleep, relax. Um, stimulus control is something that teaches you when you're in bed, you're supposed to be asleep. That's also a technique used for many other things. And it's hard because we, we think of the bedroom as uh, sometimes the, the war room. We go in there to do all kinds of stuff. Uh, don't do your, 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 your uh, financial things in the bedroom because you'll never sleep. Um, whether you have too much money or too little money, you'll never sleep. Um, and sometimes we use something called sleep restriction. This is the strong. This is the the, the the best intervention we have that is cognitive behavioral. If you're sleeping only four hours and you're staying in bed ten hours, I tell you, well, only be in bed five hours, and pretty soon now your sleep efficiency looks good and you feel good. And so we trick them into doing that. And slowly we lengthen the time in bed and they'll sleep. And then the cognitive behavioral therapy that I talked about of changing their mind, just saying, ah, oh, um, your thinking is. Having them accept that the thinking is incorrect and change their thinking. So if you compare, as you notice, I did not mention any drugs other than a few that I mentioned, but no slides with drugs. Because I don't think that medications are the key or the answer for insomnia. Um, they're all coming up. There's new ones coming up. There's one called Vilsombra that, that, in a sense, it's taken advantage of uh, narcolepsy. So it makes your brain like a narcoleptic brain, and hopefully you'll sleep because narcoleptics are very sleepy. And it doesn't work because uh, the dose that they're using is too low anyway, so it doesn't seem to work very well. But when we compare drugs to cognitive behavioral therapy, the effect size, um, it's about the same, about 50%. So if it took you an hour to fall asleep, now it's going to be 30 minutes with both of them. Uh, and, uh, but the important thing here is this. At the end of six months of both therapies, you'll have 30 40% of patients who are using CPTI being good sleepers. And drugs, zero, because they're all dependent on the drug. They call me in the middle of the night and say, I ran out of my medication. I'm dying. I need one. And so it had to be dry medications at night. Um, and so um, the dependence on medications is actually one of the most distressing things for our patients. Other age-related changes in circadian rhythm and something that happens to the elderly, advanced sleep phase. All right, and so the guy goes out there and they don't care. Um, so what happens? What happens as we get older? The circadian rhythm, as you remember, that, that drives us to sleep, um, it doesn't work very well, and literally because the brain doesn't work as well when we get older. The older brain, when compared to the younger brain, we don't learn as much. It's actually smaller. It's shrunken. And that's why I never get a CT in my head, because I'm afraid it's going to look like that, <laughs> like Homer Simpson's. But you can see the brain goes from a younger brain to an older brain. There's lots of spaces there. In fact, when we fall down, it's easy to get a bleed in the brain because the brain is shrunken. The veins that attach to the skull are a little tight, and you fall down, and they shear, and now you've got a bleed. 
And so uh, the weaker um, synchronization, weaker as uh, suprachiasmatic nucleus, reduced amplitude, melatonin output is not as good as before. We have the pineal gland. If you do some scans of the people, the pineal gland gets calcified. Now it's a fossil. It doesn't work, doesn't produce the melatonin. That's where melatonin is produced. And also weaker or non-existing zeitgebers. Zeitgebers are time givers. It's a German word. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. But uh, the sun is the major one. And elderly people in nursing homes live in the dark. Some of them never get outside to the bright sunlight. And so it's important to get them out there to get their day in sync. This is why they have lots of sundowning and this advanced sleep phase. They fall asleep at 7 p.m. and then they wake up at 3 in the morning and bother everybody else in the household. Young people are the opposite. They fall asleep at 4 in the morning and they wake up at noon. You can't get them up uh, at all. all right? And so, um, But that's what happens as we get older. The last one here is REM sleep behavior disorder. This disorder is almost strictly in older men. It has been describing women, has been describing children, but the great majority, 99%, is older men. And these, these folks, remember that I told you that in REM sleep, you, you, you lose muscle tone and you're paralyzed, uh, except for our breathing process? Uh, well, these folks are, do not lose muscle tone. They gain it, and they have dreams, and REM sleep. They're very active dreams. Uh, they're, they're action-packed, the violent dreams. I found this nice little caricature here, this uh, drawing of this, this old gentleman is fighting, but he's dreaming that he's boxing out there. And so oftentimes they hit their wives. Um, I just saw a patient, uh, a couple today, patient uh, and his wife, and um, when he came three years ago and I diagnosed him with this, the, the, the lady said, you got to do something. He had me in a headlock this morning. Oh, he did. Had him in a, in a headlock. And uh, I had an uncle who passed away a few years ago, but he, I treated him for this for the last 20 years. And, and he, he would fight dirty. He would bite his wife in the middle of the night. He's a, he's a street fighter. And um, so... Um, Violent dreams then can cause injury to themselves and others. Some people dive off the bed because they're trying to get out of the way of whatever truck is coming, and they hit themselves from something sharp, and now they're injured. And important thing is that 85% of them already have or will develop some type of neurodegenerative disorder. The most common one is Parkinson's disease. And so we look very careful for that. You can't do a whole lot about Parkinson's when it comes, it comes. But at least we can talk to them and uh, uh, consult with them and tell them what, what is to expect. Some of them don't get it at all. My uncle did not get it at all. Um, this gentleman that I have has, does not have any signs of Parkinson's disease. But those are the possible problems with REM sleep behavior disorder. Now, how do we diagnose it with the clinical history? You know, headlock, you know, if you got your wife in a headlock, that's a, that's a, a telltale sign. We do a polysomnogram. Remember when you're in REM sleep, no, no muscle tone? Well, these guys, all of a sudden, they gain it back. And you can see it. Even if they don't act out their dream, you can see the, the REM sleep and the muscle tone comes back. And that is a sign also that they may have um, the RBD or REM sleep behavior disorder. We have a questionnaire that asks, uh, you know, do you move in your sleep? How many things are off, you know, the, the bed stand, you know, your eyeglasses or glass on the floor, things like that. And you get a score. And we must rule out obstructive sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is the 800-pound gorilla in sleep medicine. It can masquerade as many things, as insomnia, as REM sleep behavior disorder, as leg movements during sleep. And uh, there is a syndrome where they just have severe sleep apnea. They're not in REM, but they act like REM sleep behavior disorder. And we treat the sleep apnea, and it goes away. Uh, And um, so... um, 
and they will respond to CPAP very well. So the treatment make the bedroom safe sometimes go as far as having them sleep in on the floor, put the mattress on the floor because if they roll out of bed, they won't get hurt as much. Remove any sharp things around the bed, you know, the nightstands, make them brown so they get a bump, not a big hole. Oh, we just remove them. Um, and um, the windows, they really can't get up and walk. Um, you know, there's been murders where it has been attributed to RBD. But if the man gets goes to the kitchen, grabs a knife, and stabs his wife, it's premeditated murder. Uh, these folks can roll around and punch, but they cannot really walk. Some of them do uh, do karate, really nice. They can't do it in, when they're awake, but when they're asleep, they're very good at kicking. <laughs> the therapy is actually quite quite good. Uh, a little bit of clonopin, clonazepam, which is one of the benzodiazepines. Um, just a tiny dose, a quarter of a milligram, sometimes a half a milligram, will take care of the problem. Um, we normally start with melatonin, a uh, higher dose of melatonin, because clonopin can make, give you sleepiness in the morning because the half-life is 42 hours in certain people. And so it lasts for a long time. And so you don't want the elderly person to be peeing the bed or doing something else in bed because you know it will suppress you from doing that. You just can't wake up. And, uh, but they seem to work very, very well. So it's quite rewarding treating them. They're very happy when treating If it doesn't work, if these medications do not work, we've got to start thinking it's something else. It's not REM sleep behavior disorder. So in conclusion, aging does not really decrease the need for sleep. We still need to sleep our seven to eight hours of sleep per night. The problem is that aging may worsen our ability to fall asleep, the aches and pains and prostates and menopausal things that come into our lives. And um, there are certain disorders, as I mentioned, that are uh, more prevalent in the elderly or as we get older, obstructive sleep apnea, insomnia, advanced sleep phase, uh, circadian rhythm disorder, or REM sleep behavior disorder. And the point is that good habits of sleep are still important. Bright light exposure in the morning will help me retire soon. And maintaining good health may significantly improve the quality of your sleep as we both age. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.